If you guys have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 22. Um, Trevor doesn't know this. After I met him, after we had coffee, when I was trying to figure out should I church plan or not, after meeting Trevor, I was like, I am definitely not doing this. <laughs> um, look, if, if my kind of accent sounds kind of interesting to you or whatever it is, let me put it this way. Every time I meet people, especially younger people, they're always like, Vin, just, just say the word. Just say it and then we can move on. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to get our, this misery out of my life over and done with. So I'll say it. G'day. That's it. That's all you're going to hear from me. Anyway, so I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to move from there to talk about and share what, uh, how God has called Laura and I into this, into this journey with him. And I felt like for parallels in our life, we felt like the call of Abraham and his path and his walk and his obedience with Christ really resonates with us in our journey now. So Genesis chapter 22, I'll read from verses 1 to 14. So after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled up his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his, to his young men, Hey, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they come to the place of God uh, had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught up in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Let me give you the background story of where this story kind of comes into place because it's quite important of what happens actually before this incident actually happens. 
So Abraham and his wife Sarah have tried for many years to have a child, and they've completely failed. And kind of God kind of jumps into the picture and says, I will promise you, I promise you with everything that I am that you will have a child, even in your old age. And so Abraham and Sarah wait upon God for this child, and many years actually pass, and none of this happens. So let me put this in this type of framework here. Quite a few years ago, my family and I, my family's originally from Vietnam. They were part of that, that refugee kind of people that, that left during the Vietnam War. But my parents decided they're going to take my brother and I back to Vietnam, back to Vietnam for this tour, just to, just to know where my parents kind of came from. So they took, me, took us to this region where it's actually quite famous for one of the biggest battles in the Vietnam War, but it's also more famous actually for its heritage, its, its history of when kings and kingdoms were. And so this tour guide took us to this kind of, kind of like this big kind of castle. And as we got there to the kind of, to the walls of this big castle, all the paint was all stripped away. And it was just kind of this gray kind of cement concrete look. But there in the middle of it was this bright red painted door. And as we got to the door, he kind of swings it open. As we kind of look, as I peek inside, you just see this beautiful kind of uh, rock kind of pebbled road that kind of led to nowhere. And we follow him inside and he goes, hey, you want come see this room. So we get to this place and there's this room and there's this beautiful kind of pond that kind of like kind of is outside the room there and there's no walls just pillars holding up the roof and I asked the tour guide hey what is this room and he goes hey this room is the king's contemplation room it's just the room where the king sits and thinks and contemplates life and then I thought to myself I have one of these rooms too I just call it the washroom but that's where I do most of my thinking. And then he goes, hey, you want to go see the king's tomb? And you're thinking, if this is the king's thinking room, can you imagine what it would be like to see the king's tomb where he's buried? And so we walk up that, that rock road, pebble road further down the road, and then we get there. And then when we get there, I see another wall where all the paint is stripped away. And even the, even the doors, the paint was gone too. And as we're there, I, I asked him, hey, can we go inside now to see the tomb? And he goes, actually, we can't go inside. We can only see it from here, this place. But that wasn't the interesting bit. The thing that was intriguing was the th what was in front of the tomb. What was in front of the tomb was this. It was another pond. But this pond had no water in it. And so I asked the tour guide, hey, how come there's no water in this, in this pond? And he says, the king before he died asked those who built the tomb to purposely build a pond with no water in it. Because for all the years of the king's reign, he had no heir. He had no one to pass on the kingdom to. He could not conceive a child. So for him, he wanted this pond to represent him as a man, as a king, as a father, and even represent his kingdom, which meant was 
without a son, without anything to pass on these things to. He was just a pond with no water. He was a pond that was completely useless. There was no purpose for him anymore. So when we get to this story in chapter 22, you have to understand what is like being, what is being thrown into Abraham's face here. We have to understand that even though God had fulfilled the promise of a son, at the same time now in chapter 22, he's saying, I'm going to take this water from your pond. Every promise that I've made that is held on to this son, I'm going to take away now. How is God going to fulfill his promise, his purposes in Abraham, if the child is now gone? So when we get to the very first part of the story... From verses 1 and 2, if you look, God kind of jumps into this story and calls out to Abraham's name. And Abraham calls out back to him and says, here I am. And then he says the line in verse 2, take your son, your one and only son whom you love, and sacrifice him. Get rid of him. Offer him back to me, even though I gave him to you. Here's the interesting thing. If you look at verses 2, especially from verses 2 to 3, there's something greatly missing in this passage. What's missing is this, is dialogue. There should be a conversation between God the Father here and Abraham. Let us put it into even our context today. If God came before us now and says, I want you to sacrifice the one and only person whom you love, a spouse, a child, whatever it is, a sibling. If you look at Abraham's reaction, it's strange because in verse 3 it tells us that he actually wakes up early in the morning. The first thing I would have done, to tell you the truth, with my four-month-old child is I would argue with God. Why? Why would you do this? Hey, let's be rational about this and say, hey, God, look, Take me instead so my child can live. That sounds reasonable. The best advice I would have is take my wife. Or why not? Why not even pray? Why not pray? Pray all day, all day until you can change God's mind, right? Why not pray to the end of the day? The end. He doesn't. He gets up early in the morning and he prepares. In faith, he continues to move forward. That fascinates me about, about Abraham's faith in who his God is. Because in my rational thinking, I would not do that. I would argue, I would fight, I would wait to the end of the day. And part of our journey for Laura and I is this. The reason why I bring up this story is not because the way I walk with God is exactly the same as Abraham. To tell you the truth, it's the exact opposite. Even though we worship the same God, my path with God is completely different. Because when, when Laura and I first got married, in our first week of marriage, I didn't even remember the conversation. In our first week of marriage, Laura came up to me privately and said, Vin, I really feel like God has called us to church plan. My, this was my response, pretty much word for word. 
First word was no. The second part of that was never bring this up to me ever again. And she never did. She never brought it up again because I was so adamant and so upset that she would even bring this up to me. I fought very simply and I'm stubborn. But God kept calling. But I kept responding in a certain way and I pushed it to the very end as far as I could until I could not resist His grace in my life. And so as our journey kept going, I tried my best to be obedient, but I kept failing. I kept waiting to the end of the day. I kept praying and fighting God on it. So as we continue in the story, we find that even in verse 3, we find that even something very simple, something very simple, but for me, something very profound. Because in verse 3, after he wakes up in the morning, we are told he goes out to the woods and he, he kind of cuts wood down to actually, do you know what? To prepare the wood to, to burn his son with. The intriguing thing to me is not just the idea of going to a forest, getting an axe, cutting wood down or collecting wood and thinking these, these very pieces that I'm picking up and chopping down is to sacrifice my child. That's one thing. The other thing is maybe I'm quite lazy. I don't know what it is, but it tells us in the text that he actually has servants. This is crucial to me. You know why? If I had servants, someone to serve me, I would call them, hey, go to the forests for me. Go get the wood for me. You know why? Because I want to spend these last precious moments with my child. Let's at least do that. But yet, he goes out and does it himself. The call to sacrifice a child was just for Abraham. And all the tasks that come with it was just for Abraham, no one else. He didn't do no shortcuts or anything like that. But the way I did it, just like my conversation with Trevor and my conversations with all these other churches, church planters and people who wanted me to church plant, it was more of a no for me. No, nah, nah, that sounds nice. That's for you, not for me. Someone else will church plant and I'll, and I'll come alongside and I'll, and I'll get involved. But don't call me to do this. Don't call me to chop the wood that, that needs to be kind of burnt. That's where Abraham and I are complete on opposite ends of the fence. As God was continually calling me to church plant, I avoided this so, so much in my life. For those who know Johnny, who works for CDC, he would call and leave a message and I wouldn't call back. Other church friends would want to meet me, I wouldn't call back. I wanted nothing to do with this. 
And part of it was my own kind of brokenness. Because part of my journey, part of my story was that my father church planted. And I saw the kind of the sacrifice, the pain and the toil that came with it. The cost on our family, the neglect of father and son. I saw it all. Why would I want to put my own family through this? So I did the best that I could and I continued to walk in disobedience. When we get to verse 4, if you look at it, it doesn't sound like a big thing, but on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. The first question I had in verse 4 to God was this. Why three days? The reason why I say this is because if you're going to call me to sacrifice my one and only child, let's just do it. Let's just get it over and done with. Let's look. I already got a barbecue in the backyard. I've got some propane gas. This is going to be easy. I don't have to cut any wood. Let's just get it over and done with. Why the whole journey for the three days? Why the misery of walking for three days knowing the things to come? Let's just end it. But for three days, and I imagine, you know, I think I am more than sure that in those three days, there would have been conversation. But I actually think on purpose, the way that Moses, who wrote Genesis, he was inspired to Leave that out. Can you imagine walking for three, those three days? I think he's trying to highlight some kind of sense of agony and pain. But for three days of walking. You know what spurred me on to continue to say No. Part of it was talking to Trevor, and that was the truth. To see how hard it was. To see how long it took. Most of us, we live in this day and age, and I've grown up in that part, you know, within, even within Australia, but here in Canada, is that in a sense, we expect results right away. That what I put my mind and my heart to, things should be happening the church should be growing. I should be making disciples. People should be flocking to hear the gospel being preached. It should be easy to inspire people to help equip the church, to set up chairs, sound equipment, all these things. But the reality is, is what? It is really hard. I mean, those things sound nice for, for us to join your church, but you, you do it. You get up really early, early in the morning and set up everything so that when we come, we can just enjoy it. <laughs> I don't want that. But part of the journey is God is, is calling me to that. But to call His saints to come along with us to do that. In verse 5, if we look, it says, As then Abraham said to his young men, so his servants, 
Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. After this terrible three-day journey Abraham is having, after hearing these words from God to sacrifice his one and only child and, and not responding in anger, not arguing, not disagreeing, not even waiting to the end of the day, but waking up early, cutting his own wood and traveling, if this were me, the last thing I would think of, according to Abraham, the last thing I would think of is worship. Why would I worship the God who has called me to something that is going to devastatingly shatter my life? Why? And yet in the midst of his absolute misery, Abraham wants to go worship. And in NIV, it says a little different. It says in the NIV, I believe, that we will come back. Some people think, some of these big brainy people who read the Bible more often than I do, they actually think that in verse 5 is the very first, sent, kind of the very first verse that actually talks about the resurrection. Where Abraham has this idea that even though he's going to sacrifice his son, the idea of they will come back together, that his son will rise one day. I say it's a, a possible clue there. But that means, ultimately, this is what it means. That Abraham believes in a God who fulfills every promise. That he believes in the God that is completely faithful. That though that God will take away the promise that is made in the Son, that somehow He will still fulfill that promise. He believes in that God. And the truth is, I believe in that God in theory, but my heart, I don't think, follows that way. And that's part of the journey now, church planning journey, where I where I lacked the vision and insight of who God is. I'm too busy looking at the task. I'm too busy looking at the things to do. Knowing, even like thinking about trying to socialize with people makes me really tired. I'm an introvert. I just want to be at home. But to go out and know and serve, the, serve a community... Someone else, God, please, someone else. Fulfill your promise to build your church via someone else. I'll come alongside them. I'll support them. I'll pray for them. I'll do anything but that. And I continue to fail to remember of who God is because I'm thinking of the task and not of the God, our God, my God, who we lovingly serve. That he is faithful in keeping every promise. I'll jump all the way to verse 11. So from verse kind of 5 to 11, you get this, you get this image of, first of all, of Abraham now taking his son Isaac. Building this kind of altar to sacrifice in there and Isaac gets on top. Before I get to verse 11, something strange is happening. There might be a lot of people camping now, but it, I want you to imagine this. 
from verses 6 to 10, what's strange to me? If my father decided to take me camping, first of all, I'll be very suspicious if my dad took me camping because he never would. But if my father one day woke me up really early in the morning, says, hey, Vin, son, let's go camping. Just you and me. Don't tell mum, though. Okay? We jump in the car. We go. We drive like for about, you know, three hours to the middle of nowhere in the outback of Australia, whatever it is. No, let's not, because there's just deadly animals in there. So I'm driving towards Edmonton. And there's this place that he finds in the middle of the bush somewhere, and we're just there. He goes, Vin, I'm going to build this kind of barbecue, and what I want you to do is just tie your hands up whenever you can, and your legs jump on that thing. And I'm lying on that thing, you know, I'm lying on that thing, and Dad pulls out a knife, and he's going to stab me. You know, one of the things I would say is, Dad, excuse me, what are you doing? Another thing I would say is, Dad, if that knife comes any closer to me, I'm going to tell Mum. The strange thing is, is this, is that Isaac keeps completely silent. He doesn't say anything. There's no stop, Dad. There's nothing, no dialogue. I bring this, this part of the story up because of this. I believe... Part of the reason why either it's not, it's left out or, why, or possibly that Isaac doesn't respond is this because I actually think Isaac has seen his father, witness his father walk before God all his life and witness how Abraham didn't complain. Kept walking in faith, kept walking in faith, kept walking in faith. And he witnessed how his father did it. And he made that a part of his own faith journey in, in his own life. Or he tried his best to. I bring that up for me as a church planter because you know why? I'm hearing all the stories. I know the stories of whether it be church plants that have failed or church planters who have just worked too, too hard, where families have been sacrificed. And I've heard those stories. I'm trying to make that story a part of my own. But I fail to remember the stories where God has, has succeeded, has remained faithful to His church, to His church planter that He's called. I don't want to hear those stories. I want to hear the stories that people failed so that, so that I can be part of that journey and be okay with it all. So I can fail to remember how faithful and good our God is. It would just be easier. But I should be, and I, I am, and I want to be inspired by those who continue to walk in faith. Like so many other church planters. And so many other people that God has called. So in verse 11, by this time when we get to verse 11, so many things have happened. And yet in verse 11, something intriguing happens. From ver in verse 1 and verse 11, there's, there's a phrase that's repeated, and, and Abraham repeats it again in the middle somewhere. He uses the words, here I am. It happens in verse 1, then it happens in verse 11. 
And it's very intriguing because the way I read it is possibly that the tone is the same. But definitely the sentence is exactly the same word for it. This is why I think it's important. If you think about this story, the way we sometimes read the Bible is this. We read the Bible in this one big scope. Like all these stories happen consecutively over, like day after day after day after day. But we're talking about years have passed from chapter to chapter. Do you know that Abraham, this character Abraham, lived to the age of 175 years of age? 175 years of age. And the way we read his story is that him and God interacted on a daily basis. And it's not true. In 175 years of life, do you know how many times God spoke with Abraham? Eight times. Eight in 175 years. So I want you to put this in, into this type of context. I want you to imagine that you haven't heard from your best friend in years, in decades. But you will always recognize this voice because it's your closest and dearest friend. So years have gone by before chapter 22. Then chapter 22 comes in and this voice that you haven't heard in a long time it suddenly appears and you hear it. You have to imagine in verse 1, there's a sense of excitement. He hasn't heard the voice that he loves the most and cherishes and worships for a long time. So you could imagine, verse 1, here I am. Wow, it's been a long time. Three days later, you hear the same voice that you have longed to hear. And that same voice jumps in and says, hey, Abraham. And he responds by saying, here I am, the very same thing. This is where Abraham and I are completely different. If this was my story from verse 1, I'll be excited just like him and scream, here I am, God. It's been a long time. But if verse 11 jumps in and, and God calls me, my first response would not be, here I am, but what? Do you want now? What more can I give you? You've asked me to sacrifice my son. There's nothing more I can give you. That would be my response. Or at least, oh, so we're willing to swap my wife for my child? That's great. Anything. But no, he this just, it's still, here I am, God. How do I continue to worship you? So how did I get to this place where now I scream to God, here I am, what would you ask of Laura and I? So Laura and I are going to plant in Huntington Hills, Thorncliffe area. So we're going to plant there. And so um, a pastor and I drove out. Actually, before that even happened, I was driving past the Huntington Hills area to pick up Laura from work. And I don't know what I felt God call out to me. And all he said was, I want you to pray for this area. That's all he said. Not plant, not anything. Just pray. Picked up Laura. We drove back home. And I was like, Laura, God told me to pray for this area. And I pointed to it. I didn't even know what the area was called. I just pointed, this is the area. And I was like, Laura, tell me about this area. And as soon as she told me the area, my heart sank. Not because of joy, 
My heart sank because out of anger and absolute misery that God would call me to that place. Let me tell you why. My family and I grew up in a really poor, really rough neighborhood. And when Laura would tell me about this area, I just felt how it resonated with where I grew up. And I was like, no, please, God, why? Why can't we just go to a well-to-do area where everything's nice and everyone's just happy and smiling, even though it's all fake? I'd rather that. And a pastor and I then, soon after that, drove out to the neighborhood and it it got worse because visually I saw everything in more detail. We drove out there and we prayed for about three hours in the area. We drove around this, this place and it was, the area was called, this area with this, this housing, it's like, it's government housing. And the area was called Oak Hill Estates. It sounds so fancy, especially once you put in the word estate, like, ooh, it is nothing like that. It's just these blocks of these, uh, these old, you know, broken up houses and, and the colors, I don't know who picked the colors, but it's like dull green and gray and I'm just sitting there. And out of nowhere, in these blocks, I could see kind of in the middle of where all these blocks where people would kind of centralize and, and maybe sit and cross paths and whatnot. And there I saw this old woman. She was about, I think she was about 70 years old. I saw her for about one and a half seconds. And she was walking. She had this black brim hat with it. It was a summer day and she had these dark black glasses. And all I remember was this, she was wearing this bright pink blouse amongst the dullness of the area and amongst the poverty of the area. And then I felt God just say this to me very clearly. He goes, Vin, you see that old woman that you just saw for about one and a half seconds? Amongst the poverty, amongst the devastation, amongst the dullness of color, that pink blouse represents me. He says, there's going to be a lot of young guys like you that think they're going to go into a community, build a big church, you know what I mean? Be exciting and, 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 and ch- turn the community around and make everybody happy. And God very clearly says, you're not doing that. See that pink blouse? That represents me. He goes, I'm already here. I'm already working. I'm not sending you there to start work. I'm already here. That pink blouse represents me. And he made it very clear to me, Vin, preach the gospel. If you preach the gospel, then they're going to see what you see. Then they're going to see the pink blouse. They're going to see me amongst the devastation. That's what I want you to do. And that was it. And if most people got that, that vision and that sight and that voice from God, you would jump off your chair and start church planting. You know what I did? I didn't. I was like, that's really good, Jesus, but I'm still good exactly where I am. We find out from verses 12 to 14 that once the sacrifice was about to be made and, and God knew for sure that Abraham loved God more than his own son, God then provided everything for Abraham. 
And we find out that the, the, the promise was completely fulfilled. So now Laura and I are on that journey for God to fulfill His promise in our life. So have I accepted this church planting call? Unfortunately, yes. There's still a part of me. Don't get me wrong. Even after all this journey, I still don't have it all together. I still got my fist up in the air towards God. And we're waiting for God to fulfill His promise as He does in verses all the way from 12 and 14. To provide the sacrifice, to provide the lamb, to provide all these things. And it's becoming tougher. Because we just found out this week, and Trevor knows this, but we just found out this week that the church that was going to completely financially support us has backed out. We just found out this week. And yet our God will provide and remain faithful. That I believe. So let me conclude and encourage us in this way. Because even after the news that we heard, Laura and I are still on the path. We're still going to church plant. God fulfilled every single promise. We find out if you... We find in the entire book that God fulfills every promise he made to Abraham. Every single one. He didn't fail in that at all. And that's the same God we worship. God fulfilled his ultimate promise. His ultimate promise by sending his one and only son to die for us. That was the ultimate promise to be made. So if God's going to fulfill His promise to send His one and only Son to die for me, for you, for all of us, what do I have to fear in what He will supply for His church plant? And God promises as He speaks to Peter in Matthew that He promises Peter that, hey, He's going to build His church and the gates of Hell will not prevail. He promises Peter that. But he also promises us today. So what do I have to fear of a God who is completely faithful? So next week, even when you celebrate Urban Grace's four-year anniversary, I love stories of God's faithfulness. He's been faithful. That inspires Laura and myself. So Laura and I will continue to walk in faith, not because it's the right thing to do, not because it's the easy thing to do. You know what? And it's not even because it's the, easy, the hard thing to do. It's got nothing to do with it being easy or hard and this and that makes me happy or sad. I am obedient because He is most faithful. So I'm going to call Pastor Trevor up just to continue with our worship service this morning. Remember, God is good and faithful.